and welcome to the Newton Knowledge Podcast. My name is Mark Singer, partner of Newton One Advisors, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Stephen Target, managing partner of our firm. Steve, how are we today? Hi, Mark. I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Great. The Newton Knowledge Podcast will provide meaningful content to our valued advisor community and clients who are interested in learning more about sophisticated insurance-related topics, focusing on estate planning and executive benefits. During our podcast, we focus our discussions on content that will deliver unique insights into the people, processes, and products that make our industry so critical. Newton One is a national life insurance planning firm delivering customized insurance solutions structured to help clients and their advisors engaged in solving estate planning, wealth transfer, business succession, and executive benefits challenges. We are a member of the M Financial Group, offering our clients access to the nation's most prestigious insurance carriers and innovative products available only through our network. Today, we have the privilege in speaking with Morgan Scott, Head of Advanced Sales and Design of M Financial Group, where he assists in the marketing and positioning of life, annuity, and disability insurance products for use in business planning, estate planning, charitable planning, along with other advanced applications. Morgan is a seasoned advanced market attorney, manager, and dynamic public speaker with diverse experience in advanced sales, team building, departmental planning, and the marketing and distribution of life, annuity, and disability insurance products across the independent brokerage and institutional channels. Morgan received his Juris Doctorate from the University of Connecticut School of Law and his BA in History from Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. To no further ado, Morgan, glad to have you on today and welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So today's focal point is intergenerational split dollar. And over the last year or so, the hot case has been Cahill and Morissette. Now most of the discussion is about Levine. But before we dive into detail on that specific case, for our listeners foundationally, what is intergenerational split dollar as a starting point, Morgan? Yeah, so just to, to completely level set, let me give a, a brief explanation, not just of that, but even to, even more fundamentally, what is private split dollar? So intergenerational split dollar is just private split dollar that has been modified slightly. And you mentioned the Cahill and Morissette cases. There was there are actually two Morissette cases. The first Morissette case validated uh, that basically that intergenerational dollar as legitimate uh, I mean, intergenerational split dollar, excuse me, as legitimate split dollar within the context of the final split dollar regulations. So private split dollar in short is where our client, the grantor, and there's variations on this theme, but, but basically the client, the, our grantor here, advances funds to their trust for the purpose of purchasing life insurance. And in exchange, they get a receivable or a note. There are two types of uh, split dollar permitted under the final regulations. There's the economic benefit regime, where we'll be spending most of our time today. And there's also the loan regime. So with economic benefit, the receivable that the grantor uh, receives in exchange for premium advances to the trust entitles them to the greater of premiums paid or the cash surrender value of the policy or policies. Any excess death benefit, uh, that basically is owned by the trust. In exchange for that, the trust pays the economic benefit, which is basically the term cost per $1,000 insurance coverage they're entitled to under the split dollar arrangement. That can either be paid back uh, from the trustee to the holder of the receivable. More commonly, it is just distributed as a gift. Uh, Most split dollar is, is very similar. I might, I might seem to be able to see differentiators. It is basically the grantor literally loans funds to the trustee for the purpose of purchasing uh, or paying life insurance premium or purchasing a life insurance policy. That loan is secured 
by the cash surrender value, death benefit, or both. Uh, that or both language can be uh, important. I'm not sure if we'll get around to it today, but that can be an important consideration. And uh, the trustee in this instance owes back interest on that loan every year to the grantor. That can be paid back uh, in, in cash or property to the grantor or rather to the note holder. It can be accrued, capitalized to principal, uh, or uh, it can be forgiven and treated as an imputed gift by the grantor or the, or the trust. Um, there's there's some wrinkles here and some details we don't have to go in into, I don't have time to go into today, but that's the thrust of it. So what differentiates them? Intergenerational split dollar, and why are we so concerned about these court cases? Well, where's the controversy? So ordinarily, with a standard split dollar arrangement, the insurance policy purchased by the trust would ensure the life of the grantor or their and or their spouse. Here it's a little bit different. We, our client, we'll call them Generation One or G One, is usually older, uh, usually uh, with limited life expectancy, uninsurable, or has health issues to the point where insuring them is prohibitively expensive. They advance premiums to the trust, typically a dynastic trust. The trustee then purchases an insurance policy on their child or children, uh, generation two. And the purpose of this is to benefit generation three and or generation two, where the beneficiaries of this trust. So that's all very straightforward, right? And the Morissette one uh, decision validates this design as actual split dollar. That's sort of what we would call the stake, right? To use a a colloquialism here. That's That's the basic design we're, we're utilizing. So where's the controversy? Well, when the grantor passes away, uh, let's assume for simplicity's sake, they are the holder of the receivable or the holder of the note. What's that worth? Is it worth the face amount? That is, in the case of an economic benefit regime case, is it worth the greater of premiums paid or cash surrender values? Or is it worth something less? In other words, can we apply a discounting factor uh, since the insured has not died yet, the policy has not matured, we don't know when the insurer will die, but we can approximate that through some life expectancy calculations. And then by applying a discount factor, we can utilize a discounted cash flow method to discount that receivable. The, where this has been an issue, and the reason why we're talking about this, is it's sometimes been abused as a means of discounting cash. And uh, that, this is why the, the, the Levine case has been so important. It's, it's the, uh, the first or one of uh, a cohort of three cases um, that deal with this issue, and the first in which the taxpayer has succeeded on all uh, legal items, all substantive items, as well as the valuation issue. Now, that's great. So what fact patterns is this strategy most commonly implemented, or both strategies per se? Yeah, yeah. So really either or, right? You know, the, the, the issue of economic benefit or loan regime is a tactical decision, but but fundamentally, this is this is really for the high net worth and ultra high net worth populace. Um, this is for individuals where G1 um, has done all of their estate planning, their estate is buttoned up, they have sufficient liquidity, there's really no more need for insurance on them. Or like I said, they're just not insurable any longer. And we're now beginning to pivot the family's planning to where we want to help generation two uh, perform their estate plan. So it might be, you know, this this would be clearly indicated in a situation where, uh, again, generation one, their plan is buttoned up, but generation two uh, such as the case with Levine, uh, might be extremely wealthy in their own right, uh, but their wealth is tied up in illiquid assets, right? So we're trying to provide uh, liquidity for generation two. Um, it's also going to be critical or typically indicative uh, of utilizing split dollar where the client doesn't want to make gifts. I mean, you can do this, right, without having to go through the complexity of the split dollar if the client still has gift and GST exemption remaining they wish to allocate. 
we utilize split dollar when the client no longer can or, or, or wishes to make reportable gifts for, for whatever reason. So that's where we would, we would typically, typically see this be, uh, be utilized. So Morgan, um, let me just circle back for a second here because we, you, you did mention uh, some of the previous cases, but I think one of the reasons why we're, we're talking about this today is because of the Levine case and the, the tax court decision that was made. Is it possible for you to summarize for our listeners maybe what changed or why practitioners are, are looking at this strategy again um, from the, you know, the, the previous, maybe some concerns about uh, following the Marsa and Cahill cases to where we are now with the Levine court decision? Yeah, right. And this is, this is really the, the thrust of it. And this is, a, this is the critical part we're dealing with. So before I, I sort of get into that, I want to make a quick comment about why you know, why are we so concerned with litigation on this issue with these three cases? So, so number one, as I mentioned, there, there have been some alleged abuses in this area, which and it is distinctly on the IRS's radar, right? So when we're dealing with the ultra high net worth, estate tax audits are almost guaranteed. And they're going to look at this. And, and I have it on good authority on those audit questionnaires. They ask about whether or not intergenerational split dollar is involved. All of the litigation that I'm aware of anyway and this is not saying all of the audits, but all of the tax court litigation has involved economic benefit regime, all three of these cases. None of these address loan regime. We can tie this back in at the end if we have time. The, the reason for that is um, economic benefit regime and, and, and the, the split dollar regs that operate or that, that give guidance on how to operate economic benefit regime control uh, for the purpose of income tax law, for gift tax, for uh, FICA, for you know, railroad pension. Uh, tax, all of that stuff, what it does not control for is the estate tax valuation of the receivable. That's why we have so much litigation around this. So this is very much a fact pattern dependent decision. We can't, we can't rely strictly on the regulations and say, because we did X, Y, and Z, um, we're in the clear. So the key, the key point here is Levine is a good facts case. Cahill was a terrible facts case. And Morissette was a Mixed case, um, and I'll, I'll go through these briefly, uh, just to give you a very brief background the interest of time. So Cahill, this this again was just about the worst facts we could possibly get. We had a 90-year-old Generation One uh, who, who was a Richard Cahill. Uh, his son Patrick uh, was attorney, in fact, under a power of attorney for Richard. Richard was completely incapacitated. His son Patrick basically established uh, in a year in the year prior to his death an intergenerational split dollar arrangement between a revocable living trust of which Patrick, his son, uh, was the trustee and an islet where his cousin and close business associate, William, was the trustee of the islet. They ended up uh, financing this. It was about a $10 million premium commitment. They financed this through a Northern Trust on a five-year note. And then when uh, G1, when Richard passed away, uh, within a year, they ended up taking a approximate 98, 99% discount on the receivable. Again, recall they advanced $10 at, at Richard's death, but it was about $9.6 million of cash surrender value. And they valued that receivable at uh, approximately $183,000. So massive discount, uh, very greedy. And because of the, 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 a couple of key items, most notably that the split dollar agreement had mutual termination rights. So it could be, it, it, it could not be terminated by, uh, by Patrick, 
the, the son unilaterally, and it could not be terminated by William, the trustee of the islet unilaterally, but they had to do so together mutually. And that was sufficient uh, from the IRS's perspective to open up a tax under 2036, 2038, um, and also 2703 because of the ability to terminate or modify these arrangements in conjunction with another person. I, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here just because it's difficult to describe these things, um, particularly over a podcast, but this is a critical element. Uh, it ended up being that in Cahill, and by the way, Cahill, this is interesting, it's a published settlement. Uh, so it is not binding legal precedent. But in that, in this published settlement, they, they uh, stipulated to zero valuation discount. So they got no valuation discount in that case. So complete collapse uh, in that instance. Morissette two, much better facts. In brief, we had a multi-generational family business. And for those of you who work in the family business space, you're probably aware not, it's not always the case that family members get along, even though it's a profitable business, the family relations of the, of the various officers in the business were related to each other, were dysfunctional to say the least. So there, this is similar in that generation one was incapacitated and, and the, the family members entering into these transactions were doing so, if I, if I don't remember correctly anyway, under powers of attorney. But it was done in, in concert with a buy-sell arrangement. So there was a legitimate non-tax purpose for establishing the life insurance coverage and putting the life insurance coverage uh, in place. And, and that was for the timely and uh, uh, organized transition of the business from one generation to the other, particularly in light of the fact that the various family members did not get along with each other. So in Morissette, because of these non-tax purposes associated with establishing the buy-sell arrangement, they managed to, to evade 2036-2038 and 2703, largely on bona fide sale exceptions um, uh, and legitimate non-tax purpose uh, exceptions to those rules or those, uh, those, 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 uh, those elements of the Internal Revenue Code. Where they failed, however, and this was a massive failure, was on the discounting of the receivable. The state claimed a discount of 75%, but there's, there's two moving parts here when, when you're trying to discount an asset, right? There's the discount rate, and then there's the time horizon or maturity date you're using. So the discount rate, what the, what the court ultimately held was that, uh, and this was a tax court memorandum as well, guys, just to be clear, not the full tax court. So this does not also have by, uh, much precedential strength. But initially, the taxpayer was utilizing a high discount rate, 15% discount rate, which is oftentimes used in life settlement yields. And the maturity date they were utilizing was the life expectancy of the insured. Ultimately, it came up during discovery. Uh, that there were discussions between the family and their legal counsel that they intended to terminate the arrangements uh, after the statute of limitations had ran. So without going into all of the details, uh, what they ended up doing was reviewing the discount rate and suggesting somewhere between a 5 and an 8% rate was used instead of a 15% rate. And instead of life expectancy, uh, they really only had a, a couple of years uh, until the maturity date for the purpose of, of, of valuing the receivable. The result was that the, that the actual the actual discount they got was not 75%, but really minimal. I can't remember the exact percent off the top of my head, but, but single digit. So in addition to having uh, their 75% their discount disallowed, they were also subject to a 40% underpayment penalty. So pretty massive stuff. I'm going to go into the Levine case and, and, and differentiate, but first I just want to pause for a second 
for you folks, Mark, Steve, if you guys have any questions at this point, let me know and I'm happy to address. I think that's, that's a good kind of setting uh, that, that's transitioned now to Levine and, and this will help you distinguish the difference and, and where we are today versus where we were prior to this, uh, this court decision. Terrific. And, and, I, and I appreciate everyone being patient. I do think it benefits to paint the picture. So number one, Levine, this is full, a full tax court decision, which means it's binding legal precedent. That's a very big deal. Um, some key differentiators here between this and the other cases. Again, this was a good facts case. Here, the split dollar agreement it was between a revocable living trust and an islet. Again, this is also arguably sort of deathbed planning. This was done within uh, one year of Nancy Levine's death, but for whatever reason, the court didn't really seem to focus too heavily on that, perhaps because overall planning for her estate had begun decades earlier. But what ended up happening is the revocable living trust advanced $6.5 million of premium uh, to the islet. There was a guaranteed interest rate on those policies of 3%, the death benefit of around uh, 17 and a quarter million dollars. There were, I, I think, uh, two or three, uh, two policies, excuse me, two second to my policies. Uh, on, I'm sorry, I said uh, Nancy was generation one. Marion Levine was generation one. Her daughter, Nancy, was generation two, who was putting this plan together, and the policies were ensuring Nancy and her husband. The key issue here was, and there's a couple of key issues that differentiate this. Number one, I mentioned earlier, and this is the case in Levine, and pardon me, this is the case in Morissette, and it was the, the case in Cahill. The split dollar agreement in those cases had mutual termination provisions. Here, this split dollar arrangement had unilateral termination provisions whereby only the trustee of the islet could terminate the agreement. And this is important in light of Internal Revenue Codes Section 2036 and 2038, which have to do with retained interests or reversionary interests or the ability uh, uh, to, to have powers to further amend an agreement that, that are held either individually or in conjunction with another person. Here, the grantor had no ability whatsoever, alone or in conjunction with another person. The only party who had the ability to terminate the agreement was the trustee of the island. The trustee of an islet was uh, an individual who was not uh, a family member. It was an officer of their, of their of, uh, I think it was their CFO, if I remember correctly, and had a fiduciary duty to all beneficiaries of the islet holding the life insurance policy. And this is critical. Some of the islet beneficiaries were not just generation two, as would have been the case in Cahill, where it really was for the benefit of generation two largely. But here, they also had Generation 3, the grandchildren, as beneficiaries of the trust. Should the islet trustee have unilaterally terminated uh, the split dollar arrangement, Generation 3 would have got nothing out of, the, uh, out of this transaction. And the trustee would have violated their duty or their fiduciary duty to Generation 3. So the court looked at this, and this, in my opinion, were two key elements. Uh, that we had an independent trustee. Uh, the court considered this individual to be beyond the control of, uh, uh, of the estate of Levine or of her children who are acting as power of attorney. Um, and uh, that, that independent trustee had a fiduciary duty to Generation 3, uh, which, again, uh, they had to act in those individuals' best interest, not just in the best interest of uh, Generation 2. So as a result of all of this, um, the taxpayers succeeded on all substantive issues on 2036, 2038, 
and 2703. Now, initially, they had claimed a, a, a an estate tax value of around, if I'm not mistaken, um, around $2.3 million, probably $2.1 million, pardon me, on the $6.5 uh, million premium advance, which had a cash value of about $6.2 million of debt. They had stipulated with the tax court that should the taxpayer, should the estate succeed on all substantive issues, uh, the value of the receivable would be $2.2 million. So this is another key thing to bear in mind that the, the, the family and the attorneys representing them in Levine were not greedy. They were not claiming a 98, 99% discount or even a 75% discount. Uh, they claimed a 65% discount and that was upheld, again, stipulated by the court uh, and no valuation held it. So just a couple of other uh, things to throw in there um, that, that I think differentiate this from other cases. The, the court was was um, enthusiastic in its play and its praise for the attorneys involved. How they this was a well thought out strategy, well documented, well communicated to the client. There was no prearranged termination language. If there were any communications to that effect, which I have no reason to believe there were, but if there were between the the client and their attorney, they were discreet. And there was a legitimate purpose for both the, the life insurance, which was to provide liquidity for generation two who were heavily invested in real estate and wealthy in their own right, basically assisting in, in providing them or jumpstarting their estate plan. It was also important, the court held it with our, or just the court perceived it as important, that the, uh, that the planning only utilized basically assets that were surplus to requirement for generation one for Mary and Levine. In other words, they did not want to affect Marion's standard of living. So it was only her excess holdings that were utilized uh, to fund this. And then finally, uh, there, there was a legitimate investment purpose. The receivable was held as legitimate fixed investment uh, within the revocable living trust. So all, all key differentiators and important factors uh, that, that helped to provide us, at least with a roadmap going forward for economic benefit intergenerational split dollar. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. And you know, Morgan, you know, because we've worked together that we at Newton One are a planning firm that really focuses on solving problems that are presented to us versus, you know, leading with a, a concept or a planning idea and trying to find a problem afterwards. It's kind of like putting the square peg in the round hole. So there are clearly potential abuses uh, of this this strategy, but it sure sounds like if if the uh, plan is put together in a deliberate manner, um, planners don't get too greedy and th they do things in, in the right format without uh, too many aggressive um, discounts on receivables or other areas that you spoke of, that this could be a, a very viable plan um, if it's, if it's uh, you know, if it, if it fits the right way. So I guess in, in my, my closing question uh, for you is, is there anything else that you would want to present um, that you think would be important for our listeners to hear about the current state of intergenerational split dollar practitioners out there, or even clients, potential clients that are that are scratching their head trying to determine what uh, what might work for G2 and G3 in terms of planning. Yeah, number one, I just want to be responsive to something you said about about the nature of your practice and and, and how you operate, right? Applying a solution to a problem versus shopping the solution for everything, right? And, and I think, particularly with, with, with transactions like this, it has to fit the client fact pattern, 
right? If we're out there promoting intergenerational split dollar off of the Levine case saying this is a this is the greatest thing from sliced bread, every client we have should be entering into these transactions, I think we're 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 lo- we're losing the plot a little bit. Right. Again, this has to be linked directly to your point to a client need. So what the Levine case does is provide us with a roadmap um, that we can stick to. And the closer we stick to what the what the drafting attorneys did, uh, the planning attorneys did in Levine, the safer we are. But bear in mind, this is still fact based. Right. So we should we should still plan on defending this. The IRS is not going to lay down on these issues. So what can we do to help shore up these transactions? Number one, I'd, I'd say to improve upon Levine plan well in advance. You know, a lot of these cases involve clients who generation one who are very advanced in age and generation two who is acting on their behalf as attorney, in fact, under a power of attorney. I think it makes a heck of a lot of sense to start working on this while the clients are still, the generation one is still capable of handling their own affairs. I would also suggest that we are very careful involving commercial premium finance in these transactions. It was something that the court really uh, went after in Cahill um, in terms of trying to say that this was a sham transaction. For instance, uh, the, the the commercial loan in Cahill was a Northern Trust loan for five years. And one of the issues uh, the, the court came up with was, hey, look, this is a five-year loan with no guarantee of renewal. And you're trying to tell me that this isn't, that, that the actual split dollar transaction is, ten- is intended to be paid off 45 years in the future. Uh, those two facts don't really line up, right? So being cautious or, or, or careful around commercial premium finance here, I think, is going to be important. Making sure that we have those unilateral termination provisions we mentioned, that was a critical differentiator between Levine and the other cases. So giving the ILIT or generation skipping trust trustees sole authority uh, to terminate the arrangement, that's very important. Um, I think making sure the trustee truly has independent trustee status. You know, I think oftentimes... And maybe you see this in your practice as well. Certainly, I see it. Irrespective of how well the client we're dealing with, um, oftentimes they use friends or family as trustee because number one, it doesn't typically doesn't cost them anything, um, and number two, they have influence over and do what they ask. In, in this instance, that fact pattern actually hurts us, right? Having influence over the trustee, so it might make sense to look at truly independent trustees, just corporate fiduciaries or trust companies. Um, and then finally, just want to double underline the fact that the trustee had a fiduciary duty to generation three, to another generation, where if they had uh, terminated the agreement, uh, they would be in a violation of their fiduciary duty. So having that, that tight fiduciary duty element and making sure we have beneficiaries uh, who cannot be removed uh, from the trust by a lifetime power of appointment by generation two or other entities uh, is important. And of course, having a legitimate life insurance need you know, from a valuation standpoint. So, so number one, I would never go, suggest going into this for the purpose of discounting, right? That is something that may occur and may provide some element of added benefit. But really, the reason you would do this is because generation two has a legitimate life insurance need. Generation one has the money and the best way to do it is split dollar, right? Should you elect to claim a discount upon generation one's death, the key thing here is don't be greedy, apply a reasonable discount rate uh, and ensure all of the planning you've done, all of the communications and presentations you've given and all the documentation you have generally supports the proposition that the life insurance is intended to be held until maturity, until the insured passes, and that the receivable has legitimate uh, legitimate investment components and benefits to the holder. Now, that's for economic benefit. 
Do I have five minutes to quickly touch on loan base or are we, are we at time, Jeff? Sure, I think so. Thank you. All right. I, I, I don't want to try our audience's patience here, but I do think this is important. So loan-based split dollar in the intergeneral, intergenerational context, as I mentioned earlier, has not been litigated. And one of the reasons it hasn't been litigated, uh, at least this would be my best guess anyway, I don't know for certain, is that the, the sections of the Internal Revenue Code and the Treasury regs dealing with loan-based split dollar control not just for economic, not just for income tax purposes, gift tax purposes, et cetera, but also for estate tax purposes. So it gives us a little bit more certainty than, uh, than, than we do with economic benefit regime. We can also be assured that if we follow certain attestations that are provided in the treasury regs, that this is, this is deemed to be a legitimate loan, right? Even though it is a non-recourse loan. Uh, secured only by the life insurance policies, cash to render value, debt benefit, or both. You know, interest rates are going up. Curious to see how inflation is going to affect this, but we are still in a historically low interest rate environment. And interestingly, the loans can be for the life of the insured, even if the insured's life expectancy uh, is, and that term uh, is longer than generation one, the lender's uh, life expectancy. I think we can still apply everything we mentioned before from Levine, but the fact that a loan is a loan is a loan, right? We have experience, the estate planning community has experience valuing um, for, for gift and estate tax purposes properly documented and executed debt instruments, right? Um, it makes it a lot safer from a valuation perspective as long as, as, as our planners don't get greedy. That, that we can really utilize loan-based split dollar as an alternative that may be safer. And again, I would still suspect an audit, but uh, again, no litigation on this front uh, until now. So uh, a viable alternative to consider as well. Excellent. Morgan, thanks for spending time with us today. I think this is, um, this is a topic that will interest a lot of our, our listeners and audience. And I think you presented it in a, in a very understandable manner, but also getting into a, a enough detail that, uh, you know, helped back up some of the details. So thanks for being with us. And um, certainly if anybody has any additional questions, uh, reach out to us here at Newton One and we can connect you with Morgan as well. Take care now. Material and opinions voiced are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what is appropriate for you, please contact a member of our team.